Well, good morning, family. It's good to see you this morning. Good to be here in the Lord's house. As we come here into the Lord's house, as we are here in His presence, let's go to Him in prayer as we prepare to look into His Word. Father God, we are so grateful. We've had a week of that we are focused upon thanksgiving. How it reminds us that should be our default all the time. We ought to be grateful and thankful people, but we so often take the many blessings that we have for granted. We so often think little of not only how we have been blessed physically, but how much more we have been blessed spiritually. You have given to us every spiritual blessing, Your Word says. You have lavished Your blessings upon us, the Scripture says. Even at times where it does not seem it, even at times where we are going through trial, we are going through times of difficulty, yet still Your blessing is great. It is, as we sang earlier, it is more than our our struggles. Father, I do think this morning of many who are suffering with physical infirmities. We ask Your blessing upon them. I ask Your special blessing on my dear sister Anne Blank, who just even before she came here this morning learned that her son Jimmy is is being put on hospice. Lord, I pray for Your grace and Your comfort for her, for him, for that family. Father, in these moments as we come to Your Word, we ask that we would have open ears to hear, open hearts to take Your Word and to take it deep into our soul, to apply it to our life. We may not be hearers only, but doers. And so, Lord, teach us now. Give Your grace to the speaker that he might speak Your words and grace to us all that we might listen well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I encourage you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5. I don't know if you're a football fan, but when we think of football, typically we think of 60 minutes of hard-hitting, bone-crunching, exciting plays. However, a few years ago, the Wall Street Journal calculated that of the 60 minutes on the game clock, the average, in the average uh, NFL game, the players actually only play 11 minutes of that 60 minutes. The rest of the time, they spend doing this. Standing around. (laughs) Figuring out what they're going to do next. Getting ready. But that tends to change in the last two minutes of the game, or at least it does if the team that's behind gets the ball. Then, generally, they move into a hurry-up offense. And the team that's behind tries to 
cram as many plays as they can in the remaining seconds of the game and hopefully make up for everything that wasn't done in the 58 prior minutes. And it often seems to me that they play more football in those two minutes than they do in the preceding 58. And I often think as well, if they had played like that earlier, they wouldn't be in the mess they're in. That's football. What does that have to do with 1 Thessalonians 5? Well, we've spent nine weeks in this short little book Nine weeks going through the first four and a half chapters of this book. We're almost to the end. And yet, we're going to spend four weeks on the, on the final 18 verses because like a football team, when the two-minute warning has sounded, quarterback Paul comes to the end of this letter and he packs these last verses with a rapid-fire barrage of important instructions. They're very brief, these instructions, but they are potent and practical. And it's going to take us a little time to get through them. You may recall, if you were around a few weeks ago, back in chapter 4, we were encouraged here in this little book to keep increasing in love for one another. The Thessalonians, he said, were a church that was well known for their love for one another. They were already practicing love for one another very well, but he said, you can do better. Keep abounding. Do more and more. In a very similar way, I look at you, the chapel of the lake, and you are a very loving church. You love one another. You care for one another. And he said, we can do more and more. Here in verses 12 to 15, our focus for this morning here in 1 Thessalonians 5, four verses that are all about relationships. How we are to relate to one another in the church. It's really about, in a way, getting to the nitty gritty, to the down and dirty about putting into practice loving one another more and more. The first verse here, or a couple of verses here, deal with our relationship with leadership. And then the next verses are about our relationships in general with one another. Look at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You see, right off, the first thing he calls for us to do in a relationship with leadership is he says, respect them. But before we go there, before we go with our responsibilities, our, our relationship with leaders, what I want us to do is notice in this verse, while it's not directed to leaders, if we look closely, what we'll discover is this verse says four things leaders are to be doing with those whom they lead. Four duties of church leaders here in verse 12. He says, the first thing I notice, by the way, is actually something that's not really there. He says, as he speaks about leaders, I notice that he doesn't recognize, he doesn't name, he doesn't call out the leaders by name, nor by title, nor by office. 
He doesn't say respect your pastors, respect your elders, respect your deacons, respect your bishop. He's, it's interesting, he doesn't notice them at all by titles, but rather by their service. There's a very big difference between worldly thinking and Christianly thinking when it comes to leadership. The world loves position. The world loves title. And so people love to have little letters after their name or in front of their name. Doctor or Ph.D. or, you know, whatever. We like titles. Bishop, Pastor, Reverend. We like titles. But that's not the Bible view. It's not the real Christian view. It's not about leadership in the church. It should not be about title or office or seeking prestige or honor, but rather about humble service. It should be about putting into practice following the example of Jesus, who you recall Mark chapter 10. It says, He came not to be served, but to serve. To give His life a ransom for many. Leadership in the church is about service. Not about titles and honor. The Apostle Paul, even here, he never calls himself the great Apostle. He never exalts himself. When he does, a couple of times, he defend, he's doing it to defend his position, not for the sake of his honor, but so that... Understand that what he's saying has the authority that God has given him to speak, which is necessary, but it's not at all to call attention to himself. Matter of fact, in one of the cases, he says, I sound like a madman. I hate this. I don't like saying this, but I need to say to establish my position. But he's saying it's not he's seeking honor. Generally, Paul just simply says, Paul, a servant, bond slave, the lowest of slaves. Here he says, Paul, he says, us, we, that's him and his assistants, Silas and young Timothy. He says, we, like equals, we ask you, brothers, again, equals. Paul doesn't exalt himself. There's an example there. We are equals. Leadership is not exalted and high. Leadership simply means we're to serve. Leadership is all about being humble, being a servant. Second thing I notice, the duty of leadership, is he says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. That word labor means to work hard. It means to work diligently. It means to literally to work to the point of exhaustion. I have a feeling some of you this week were out there taking advantage of those last couple of days where it was, you know, 60 degrees, where you're out in your yard, where you're raking and mowing and, and uh, hauling bags of leaves around and, and brush and put, starting to put up Christmas decorations. And you were probably grabbing every inch of daylight that you could grab. And then you went inside and you are beat. I I saw a bunch of hands kind of going up. Yeah, that was me the last few days. That's what he says our labor should be like in ministry. 
We recognize the time is limited, the opportunities and the need is great, and we expend ourselves in the service of the Lord Jesus and the service of His people. That's what leadership in the church is. To labor to the point of exhaustion. I love the way John Calvin said it, the old great reformer. He used an expression I love. He said, in the first place, he's commenting on this verse, in the first place, he, Paul, states that they labor It follows from this that all idle bellies are excluded from the number of pastors. (laughs) He says, in other words, there's no place in church leadership for pastors and leaders who are lazy. No idle bellies. Never heard that phrase before, but I love it. Third thing about leadership in the church. He says that you are to respect those who labor among you who are over you in the Lord. They are over you, meaning that they have responsibility and they have authority to lead and guide and direct all of us who are under their care. Along with that responsibility and authority, there also comes accountability. You notice he says they are over you in the Lord. The Lord Jesus has put them in a place of authority And along with that comes accountability. The book of Hebrews says it this way. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. The day is coming, you see, when we stand before our Lord Jesus Christ and all of us who are leaders will stand before Jesus Christ and have to give answer for how we led. So leaders are to be humble. Leaders in the church are to work hard. Leaders are to understand there is responsibility and there is accountability for that. And fourthly, he says that they labor among you who are over you in the Lord and they admonish you. Now, I was thinking back and I could not think of a time in the last year where I used the word admonish in a sentence outside of church and outside of using it in a biblical sense. It's just not part of our normal words or vocabulary. And so what does the word admonish mean? And often we think of it, and in some translations it's even as teach. To admonish is to teach, and that's not a bad understanding of the word admonish, but this word here is particularly helpful to look at in the original. It it means literally to put in mind. In other words, to admonish is to put a thought in someone's mind. It is to stimulate someone's thinking. It is to encourage people to reason, to think through things. So to admonish, for a leader to admonish means that they are to be busy to uh, help us think through and understand the, the contrast between my natural inclinations, for example, and God's desires and God's Word. What God wants us to do versus my natural inclination. Have you noticed that those are usually different? And to admonish someone is to bring that into focus. Help them see, oh yeah, here's your tendency, but here's what God wants you to do. 
to draw into contrast, stark contrast, the difference between the way the world thinks and what God says. That is admonishing. The greatest need that people have is not to get their problems fixed. But that's what most of us want. We'd like to come to church and have the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or, or whatever, we'd like to have somebody fix our problems, fix our financial issues. Our marriage is messed up. Fix our marriage. My kid's messed up. Fix my kid. You know, Fix the problems in my life so that my life is better. That's what most of us want, but that's not our greatest need. Those are not illegitimate needs. Those are real things. But our greatest need is to know God, to know what He says, and to put it into practice. And so the greatest responsibility that we have as leaders is to learn God's Word well so we can teach God's Word well and to live a good example so that people will learn and follow. That's our greatest responsibility because that's what is our greatest need. In Hebrews 13, again, it goes on and it says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the Word of God to you, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. See, that's what leaders are supposed to be. Those who teach the Word of God and then they not only teach it, they live it so that we look at them and we, we see the example and we see the outcome of their way of life and we follow. It's a duty of leadership. By the way, that's why I'm in ministry today. One of, partly at least, due to a, a guy, a man named Orv Mitchell. Worst Sunday school teacher I ever had. Couldn't teach his way out of a paper bag. But he studied hard. He knew the truth. He just couldn't teach it well. But oh, could he live it. I met that man. I knew I met somebody who loved Jesus. And I knew I met somebody who loved me. He lived it well. He was on the way to his funeral that I found this verse. And I looked at the outcome of his way of life and I said, God, I've always thought that you... I, you want to use me somehow, but I never really figured out how because I'm, I can't do anything. <laughs> but here's Orv Mitchell, the least talented guy I've ever known, and he used him greatly simply because he loved Jesus and he loved people. So if you can use me like that, I'm yours. Leaders, to be humble, work hard, be responsible and accountable for those that Jesus puts under their care. They're to be faithful to admonish, to teach. Now let's quickly jump into the next part because it gets into our responsibility. Go back to verse 12 because it wasn't written to leaders. That was just bonus stuff. It's written to us. How you and I are supposed to respond to the leaders that God has put into our lives. By the way, you'll notice, as I said to begin with, He doesn't identify the leaders by titles. He doesn't say here, this is how you're to treat your pastor. This is how you're to treat your elders, your deacons. He says, you're to, this is how you're to treat those folks who were the people in your life who are the humble ones who work hard to serve you spiritually, who, are, who have a, some responsibility for you. They've taken responsibility for you spiritually. They 
admonish you, they teach you, they direct you to follow Christ. What that means is it can include your pastor, your elders, your deacons. It can also include your Sunday school teachers, your home group leaders. It can include the youth workers that work with your kids, the children's workers who work with your children. It can include even a personal mentor. See, all of those folks, all of these things he's going to say about how we treat our leaders apply to all of those people. With that in mind, let's look at what he has here about three duties that you and I have to our leaders. Back to verse 12 again. Let's read it now for how we are supposed to treat our leaders. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. First of these three responses, pretty obvious right there at the first, it says, respect them. But it's interesting when we think about respect, it's interesting to look at this word. It literally means to know them. Matter of fact, if you have some older translation of the Bible, like the King James, I think it says, recognize your leaders. Literally, that's a good translation. To recognize, it means to, to notice them. To pay attention to them. To be aware of them. In other words, don't just take them for granted. Sure, that's just the, that's what elders do. Who a deacon is, sure they do that, but you know, they're, they're my Sunday school teacher. Of course they're like that. Don't just take them for granted, but recognize their people. The people who have feelings and people who have needs. With that in mind, let me just offer four suggestions, very practical things about what that looks like. Be appreciative. You and I often are oblivious to the, the hard work and to the sacrifices that our leaders make on our behalf and for the Lord's work need to take time to notice and express our gratitude to them. When's the last time you thanked a deacon, appreciated an elder, that you went out of your way to appreciate your Sunday school teacher or your kid's Sunday school teacher? Not just be appreciative, but be an encourager rather than a critic. Sadly, I've noticed over my 40 years in ministry, there's a tendency among many Christians to be great critics, but poor encouragers. It's very easy for folks to come and show up and they can criticize a program, criticize a study, criticize an event. Well, they didn't have, you know, enough food. Oh, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have the food I like. Can you believe this coffee? You know, they be critical about all kinds of things. Yet seldom encourage and praise, express gratitude to the folks who make stuff happen. shouldn't be the case in the church, but it all too often is. By the way, I want to say, I don't hear a lot of criticism in this church. I think you guys do this well. But it's a tendency. And I don't know why, but I've heard from many Christian leaders in my time when they look at the world and they compare the Christian world to the secular world, they say the Christian world is much more critical. I think it tends to be true overall. 
I'm glad it's not the case here. Let's keep it up. Be appreciative. Be an encourager. Be a helper. Don't just soak in the hard work and the sacrifices and, and all the labor of the leaders, but if possible, get involved and help wherever you can. Help carry some of the load. Help set up. Help tear down. Help take on some of the responsibility. By the way, I've noticed that people who tend to help also don't tend to be the critical ones. It's a good antidote. Fourthly, pray for them. Pray for your leaders because they are in over their heads. Guarantee it. Now, I haven't actually talked to every single leader in this church. But over the course of my years here, I have heard this from virtually every elder, every deacon, every pastor who has served in this church. When they take an office, when they take the responsibility of leadership, they say, whoa, man, I'm so far over my head. I'm so out of my depth here. They need your prayer because they need God's help. Pray for your pastors, your leaders, your teachers. Second thing he says, not only respect them, but he says, esteem them very highly. I love the NIV. It translates it, hold them in high regard. Value them. Treasure them. Understand that good leaders are absolutely essential to the health of the church. They're valuable. They are also incredibly essential as well to our own personal spiritual health. We need good leaders. So value them. He says, value them, esteem them highly in love. In other words, it shouldn't just be something that you do because the pastor said, well, you need to value and esteem your leaders. Okay. Guess I'll go home and write a note of thanks to some deacon. <sighs> no, you do it because you love these people. You realize they're working hard for me and for us. They're my friends. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Out of love we do this. Genuine. We do it also because of their position. They are over you in the Lord, it says. In other words, they're over you. They, they have some authority. They have responsibility. But they're in that position because the Lord has put them there. A leader may not be smarter than you. A leader may not be more knowledgeable than you. A leader may not be more talented than you. In fact, I say it's often the case that they, the leaders are not more of any of these things than you are. The respect is not because they are better in any of these things than you are, but because they're in the position. Because the Lord has put them there. It's our duty. It's our duty to respect them and respect that position. We don't have time to go there, but 
You guys probably know. If you don't, go back and look at Romans chapter 13, the first few verses. I think it's verses 1 through 7. It's all about authority, not just in the church, but outside of the church. Every person who's in authority over you, the Bible says, is there because God has put them there. It says there is no authority except what comes from God. And therefore, we are to respect the authority, even when they disagree with us even when they may be wrong we're to treat them with respect because of the position but not only because of the position but the text says we're to hold them in high regard as those who are over you in the lord we are to esteem them highly it goes on to say because of their work verse 13 because they're giving, they're sacrificing, they're being faithful. I want to add to that, there's, we have a tendency to focus on people who make impressions upon us because they are likable, because they are funny, because they are intelligent or gifted or whatever. And those are the ones we are more likely to honor and to esteem highly and it's easy to ignore the ones who aren't quite as personable, who aren't quite as gifted or talented, and they, however, are faithfully serving in the background. You see, esteem them highly, not just because you are drawn to them, but esteem them highly because they are faithful in their labor. Because they labor among you. Thirdly, the duty we have to our leaders. We respect them. We are to esteem them. And the third one doesn't seem to fit. He says, live in peace with each other. He says, get along. Be at peace among yourselves. You wonder, what in the world does that have to do with how we respond to leadership? Well, if you don't know the answer to that, you need to talk to a parent. Anybody here who is a parent of more than one child? Because they get it. If you have two or more kids in your house, you know what it is when those kids go at it. Right? The tension level goes up in the house. Your blood pressure as mom or dad goes up in the house. Everything in the house gets into this because... The kids aren't getting along. See, it's the same way you see in the church with leaders who love their, their little flock. When there's dissension in the ranks, it's discouraging and it's draining on the leadership. But when the folks in the little flock get along and love one another and work together, it brings joy to the leaders and joy in the church. So in the book of Hebrews, I read earlier from this verse, I read the first part, Obey your leaders and submit to them as those who are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. It goes on, let them do this with joy. Let them be leaders with joy, not with groaning. What he says is that it's the folks who are being led, it's the folks in the little flock who make the difference between whether the leaders enjoy their work or it's a labor. 
And say, we've seen that here in this church. Your leaders, your pastors, elders, deacons, teachers, we can say that overall this church is remarkably loving and gets together, gets along together remarkably well. And it brings incredible joy. It's not often the case in churches. And there have been times and there are occasionally times where there's a little spit or spat and, and let me tell you, it gets to us. I remember when I was thinking about going into ministry and I was in seminary and they say how much time pastors spend on putting out fires, putting out fires of disagreement and dissension out in the congregation. They'll say, this takes up the majority of your time. And in many places it does. It hasn't been the case here. But I talk to a lot of pastors. talk to a lot of elders and deacons and leaders. It's a big deal. When you guys get along, it makes for happy leaders when we get along. Paul says it makes it a joy to lead. Well, so those are the three duties we have to leadership. Now as it moves on, and we're going to have to very quickly, I'm just going to have to go into the two-minute offense here. Five duties we have to one another. Again, Paul just throw these things out there. They are hand grenades. Every one of these things are powerful. You might, by the way, just notice when he talked to us about how we are to treat the leaders, he says, we ask you brothers. Hey guys, I got a request. Now notice how he starts this off, verse 14 and 15. Notice the first words. We urge you. It just got a little more important. just got a little more critical here. Let me read it. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. These things, they're vital things. We're dumping them out there like hand grenades, but they need a lot of attention. Essential for life together as believers. The first one, he says, is admonish the idle. Or some of your translations might say the unruly. You might be going, how does the unruly, or some Bibles translate unruly and others the idle, how do those fit together? Well, it works like this. It's a military term. In the Greek, it's a military term. And it's... It, the person who is this idle or unruly is the person who has broken rank. It's the person who's gotten out of line. They're not in step with the rest of the, of the formation. They've fallen out of the formation. The picture here is of the church that we are as believers in Jesus Christ. We are to be followers of Jesus. The word Christian literally is follower of Christ. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be following Him. But occasionally, somebody falls out of line. They sit down. I'm tired. Sitting down. They step aside. They butterfly. (laughs) And, And they get distracted. And what this is saying is that we all are to be looking at we all around us. And when one of the we all sits down or breaks out of line or goes off to the tulies out to the side, it's our job to admonish. That means to go over and say, hey, we're going this way. You know? It's the very friendly little kick in the bohiney. You know, get up. Come on, let's go. 
We're supposed to be following Jesus. Where are you going? Bob? <laughs> Come on. Let's go. That's it. Admonish the unruly, the idle. He goes on, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Sometimes people get out of line because they, they've gotten distracted or they've got a little rebel streak going. Sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard to hang in there. And you get discouraged. You get tired. Or you're afraid. I'm not sure where this is going. Sometimes people start to lag behind because they're faint-hearted. And what they need, it says here, encourage. This word encourage is to come alongside. This time, it's not with the little kick to the bohiney. It's the, hey, come on. You can do this. Come on. Keep going. Look where, look what's happening. I know you're a little afraid, but come on. I'll, I'll walk with you. It's encouraging the faint-hearted. Are they afraid? Are they discouraged? We're to be on the lookout for those who are discouraged, faint-hearted, and come alongside. Verse 14, again similar. There's some who, who struggle in following along because they are weak, it says. Help the weak. This may refer to literal physical suffering. They are frail. They are hurting physically. They need caring. They need attentive attention because they're physically hurting, but it might be not physically hurting, but emotionally or spiritually hurting. They simply don't have the ability or the strength to keep going. They're a casualty. And what this word is, literally the word help is the word to pick up. It's the word to lift up. It's the word to support. And so it's one of us gets them up and we put them on our back or two of us, each of us grabs an arm and we, we carry them along. We help them along. That's our duty to one another in the body. We're to admonish the one who's gotten out of line. We're to encourage the faint-hearted. We're to help the weak. We're to be patient with everyone. Church is an awful lot like a family. You know, in family we have a lot of similarities. My brothers and I have a lot of similarities. We're all about the same height and build and we kind of look in many ways. We have a lot of similarities. But we are as different as night and day. In the church, we have some similarities, but we also have a lot of differences. Some people have different ways of looking at things than we do. Some people have different preferences and different styles and different tastes. Some people have different priorities. And it can be challenging to get along in the body, can't it? It's never easy. This young church in Thessalonica had people... We think we have diff different backgrounds. This, this church had people from different backgrounds. There are, um, We know for a fact that they were, there were staunch Jews who had become believers in Jesus and part of this church. We know that there were idol worshipers who had come out of pagan idol worship and were into this church. It's like you have a, um, you know, a, um, an Amish person and a street gang member who come into the same church. 
We know that Acts tells us they were high society ladies who were part of this church. And I imagine that this church, like all of these New Testament churches, probably had poor people and slaves as well who were part of the church. Can you imagine? It's never easy for us to get along with people who are drastically different than us, but the reality of the love and the reality of the power of Christ show up in us tremendously when we who are different live together in love and in unity. And that requires patience. Lastly, verse 15. See to it. He started off with, we ask you. He moved the verse before this to, we urge you. And now in this verse, he says, see to it. That's the word of saying, don't ever let this happen. He's moved from a request to more and more urgent. Don't ever let this happen. See to it that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Be gracious. Occasionally, because of all these differences, we will step on one another's toes. It happens even in this church. Sometimes somebody will say something that offends us. Somebody will say something that hurts us. They will step on our toes and we get really offended. Natural inclination of us as people is to try to get even. You hurt me, I hurt you back. Nobody had to teach us that. We came out that way. As parents, we're trying to stop our kids from doing that, but the thing is we still struggle with that as adults. An eye for an eye. But he's saying, don't seek revenge. See to it that no one repays evil for evil. It's not an option for a believer. It's never the right answer. Remember that God said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord back in Deuteronomy. Paul will later write to the Colossians, Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. The reason we are to forgive is because God has forgiven us. And if God can forgive you, you can forgive them. Not only can you, you need to. You must. And then he adds, and to everyone. Always do good. Not only don't seek vengeance, but always do good and do it to everyone. In other words, he just moved it outside the church. Do good to one another, he says, and to everyone. Jesus told us that we even we are to even do this to our enemies. Luke chapter 6. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Again, it's not because they deserve it, but as Jesus went on, even unbelievers show love to the people that love them. But you and I are to be different than that. We're to be different than that because we have a different Father. And our Father is merciful. Our Father is gracious. And so we're to be gracious and merciful. The church should be a place of grace. The church should be the place where great sinners find great grace and great mercy. Because it's full of people who have found great mercy from a great God. What a list. Twelve duties. Twelve things here for you and me to do 
Well, if you're a leader, and by the way, all of you are leaders somewhere. So, 12 things for us to do. I guarantee that out of that list, there's one or two that you need to work on. If not, come talk to me, because I'd really like for you to finish preaching the rest of this series, because I'm way behind you. I've got a lot of things here to work on. So let's get to work. Father, thank You for this stuff. Important, critical stuff for us to get along with one another in this family You've put us into, the body of Jesus Christ. Things critical for our leaders to be doing. Things critical for us to be doing with our leaders. Things critical for us to be doing with one another. Lord, may we put these things into practice. Not to be just listeners. Not to be just spectators. But to be those who take this stuff and be doers of it. That this would be more and more every day a place of grace. A place that is so exemplary of Your grace to us that it can't be ignored by the folks around us. That our neighbors, our friends, our family are attracted to Jesus. That they discover His grace because they have seen His grace at work in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.